0: Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink, and this is The Bookseller Podcast. Penguin General! Hello, and welcome to a special edition of The Bookseller Podcast. What you heard there was the atmosphere from the British Book Awards last night. We'll be hearing all about the winners. I'll be interviewing the legendary Lee Child, who was crowned as Author of the Year,
1: one day my boss said something to me that made it just impossible for me to continue he said you're fired
2: (laughs) (laughs) and we'll be playing out with a clip of the book that won the audiobook award what was strange about this night was that everyone was gone it was just me and our two dogs and a silent empty house like i haven't known in eight years Joining me
0: in the studio are Nigel Roby, the chief exec of The Bookseller, and the editor, Philip Jones. Hello. Hi. Nigel, what a splendid evening it was. Someone said to me, this is just like the BAFTAs, but for books. Um, Give us a bit of background to the awards. How did they come about?
3: Well, I love the BAFTAs for booksing. I've been saying that for ages and now people are quoting it back to me. That's fantastic. The British Book Awards are the awards that celebrate the best books of the year, the best publishers of the year, the best bookshops of the year. So they're taking in everything. So they're not just about the books, they're not just about the bookshops and so on. And they're a celebration of the whole of this very creative industry of the book trade.
0: Yep, And everybody was gathered there last night. How many people were in that enormous room?
3: It was a lot of people. Uh, There were something like 940 people, something like that. It was a busy old night.
0: And people call the British Book Awards the Nibbies, don't they? Explain that for us. They call
3: them Nibbies. The Nibbies were first set up not by us. We've taken them over over the years. Back in 1990 by a chap called Fred Newman. And the reason why they're called the Nibbies is plain and simple. The trophy that was used, which has evolved over the years is in the shape of a gold nib, plain and simple. The How lovely.
0: People want to take home a nibby.
3: Oh, they do. And yes, some of the pictures on social media this morning. uh, So there's (laughs) a picture from Faber's office of a a collection of nibbies there, which is great to see, all shining in this morning's sunshine.
0: Yes, Faber were big winners last night, weren't they, Philip? Perhaps you could take us through all those nibbies that Faber have now got in their office.
4: So Faber won Independent Publisher of the Year, as Chief Executive Stephen Page said, in their 90th year. So... um, uh, befitting that they won that in that year of such a big birthday celebration, but actually they won just because of their brilliant publishing. I think sales are up about 15% overall, uh, and they published books that have won prizes, books that have sold well um, commercially through bookshops, none more so than the two winners. So Sally Rooney, Normal People, won the Fiction Book of the Year and the Overall Book of the Year, which was a huge bestseller, and fiction debut was Layla Slimnani's Lullaby. Uh, and she gave a very nice acceptance speech over video. So uh, just a fantastic year for Faber. And they were the right winner for independent publisher this year.
0: And great to see independent bookshops celebrated. Great to see all bookshops celebrated. Perhaps Nigel, tell us about that.
4: Well,
3: I think indie bookshops are at the heart of everything. And it's it's really noticeable when you have some really big name authors on stage and presenters on stage really shouting out for indies. Because even though they might represent a very small percentage of sales, really, you know they're just the the heartbeat of everything and they're often the ones that are getting those books first you know and getting them accelerated so i think my favorite category is the independent bookshop of the year and it's really terrific you know, the ganders who are a wholesaler of books they put in a 5 grand prize there for that indie bookshop to win and it was a scottish one this year it was golden hair books uh, who are in the stockbridge part of edinburgh and it is just wonderful to see how excited they are. But also, what was fun last night was that I caught up with a few of the folk who have been on our um, book doctors. Yes, was I nice? saw Richard Drake uh, coming down from Drake Bookshop, who was a couple of podcasts ago – all good fun and, and great winners and a lot of love in the room.
0: Absolutely loads of love in the room for the booksellers.
4: And the other big winner was Michelle Obama of course who, won, who won two of the book awards uh, the non-fiction uh, narrative book of the year for Becoming and the audiobook of the year and certainly one of the moments of the night was Obviously, she wasn't there in person, uh, was busy, I understand, uh, last night, but uh, she sent us an acceptance video speech.
0: That was amazing in the room. Everybody got kind of slightly giggly and tearful yeah. all at the same time. <laughs> Almost
4: at that point, I felt, I'm, I'm done now. This, this can get no better. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm going home now. That was mainly because Philip didn't want to go up on stage later.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We've got yeah. a little clip from Tom Tivnan, who's a regular on the show, about the appeal of Michelle Obama.
3: Well, in some ways, I think it's about an anti-Trump thing. It appeals to readers because we remember a time when there was a decent person in the White House. But, of course, it's also a kind of rags-to-riches story, and it's interesting how it works in book form, but also, you know, as an audiobook as well. Part of her appeal is the way she can connect with people and how she is able to do that through audio is amazing. It's interesting, the day we were judging these awards. She sold out the O2. 20,000 people went to see her. It's a message that cuts through. It appeals to young people, first of all. It's about doing your best, reaching your potential. I think that's a universal message.
4: And of course, the publisher, Penguin General, won the overall Publisher of the Year Award, which is the final award of the night, which I do. Uh, which, as Nigel suggests, is a bit of a pain because I have to stay relatively sober <laughs> until about quarter to 11. And then I have to drink very it's all fast part of afterwards. my cunning plan.
0: And did you? Because I must say, I didn't did think I? you looked terribly sober. <laughs> <laughs> did that go <laughs> Thanks to for plan? That <laughs>
3: Whereas, you see, my cunning plan is to go up first,
0: get that done, then I can just have a drink all the way through. Perfect. There we go. So, why did Penguin General win the overall, Philip?
4: Well, it's interesting. I mean, they have really strong, vibrant publishing across the board and had many books on our shortlists. Um, But for me, to win one of the big prizes, to win Publisher of the Year or Independent Publisher or Children's Publisher, you kind of have to have the big book. And they had the big book, which is the Michelle Obama book, which I think even outsold their expectations. This year was really difficult because there were a number of very strong publishing and publishing performances on the Publisher of the Year shortlist. A few comeback stories, Orion, Bonnier books, a few publishers going from strength to strength, like, HarperCollins and Little Brown, but I think Penguin General, Michelle Obama just pushed them over the edge. You know, I think when it came through, when it was being published, I think we thought it would sell a couple of hundred thousand copies. Kind of one of the big celebrity memoirs of the season, but it trebled those sales. Five, six hundred thousand. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think it was just such a significant cultural event as well, wasn't it? Of course, it you know, it, so, it yeah. is an industry. Everybody needs to, you know, as my Irish dad always says, nothing wrong with making a few quid. But also, it's more than money, isn't it? Bookselling. It's about heart. And I think that the way they published Michelle Obama, bringing all her brilliance and the message of hope that she carries. I really loved the fact, obviously, she wasn't there to accept it, but the headmistress of a school that she visits yeah, in North London accepted deep, yeah. the award for her and that was all rather beautiful.
4: They made her in a way as important as Barack Obama. I think, in the way they published it. Really, mm. really cut her through as a statesman-like figure for the future. Well, absolutely, Fingers crossed.
0: Yeah. Fingers crossed. Isn't it great that we've got her on our planet? <laughs> <laughs> I played this game where I think if the aliens landed, who would I pick as a human being to go and represent us all? And Michelle and Obama's what, my
4: number Anay? one at the uh, moment. Uh, oh, okay. Well, well not Obama. this week, because she's a bit busy doing the British Book of the Year <laughs>
3: uh, publicity tour. So. <laughs> but I think when we saw that video, which was... I and mean, we only knew about it on the day. There was a lot of shuffling around, how the hell are we going to get this in? Because we like, you're going to get it in, aren't you? You're not going to not have that. But you could see completely there, as she was talking to us, talking to the room, that connection she makes, it is kind of uncanny. And you don't really see it on the television. I'm sure you do it when you go and see her live. In that room last night, which, as people can imagine, it's a fairly noisy old room, absolute dead quiet everyone listening to Michelle Obama.
0: Yeah, it's star quality, isn't it? But again, more than that, it feels like something that is truly some sort of heartfelt message.
4: But also I found, because sometimes the trade awards are roughly split into two. You have the Books of the Year and the Author Awards in the first half. Then we have Dinner, uh, which I don't drink. And then uh, we have the Trade Awards. And sometimes after the amazing speeches that you always get from authors and from uh, the presenters that present those awards and kind of Author of the Year... Uh, speeches the trade bit can seem a bit more subdued as you're mm-hmm. giving awards for you know quite technical jobs like rights profession of the year or agent of the year but this year I mean those guys really stepped up to the mark. I mean some of the best speeches were I think you know Catherine Summerhay's speech for literary agent of the year was, yeah, was, was amazing, fantastic yeah. 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 And, and all throughout I think people gave really heartfelt, just just wonderful speeches. Yeah, a
0: little shout-out to Kath Sommerhaze's mum, who worked nights at Sainsbury's to afford and, to send And And Venetia,
4: Venetia Butterfield's speech uh, on accepting the award for Penguin General, referencing uh, the untimely and early death of John Hamilton, just ended the night perfectly.
0: So many people from the stage talked about, and, and actually people that are new to the industry and people that have been working together for decades talked about what a privilege it feels like to be part of that industry. And that felt very strong in the room, didn't it?
4: The phrase that kept getting repeated was lovely people. You are such lovely people. It's very true, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the other things that was really nice um,
3: was kind of one of those unscripted moments. David Walliams was up because he'd won Book of the Year for children's fiction for The Ice Monster. And he dragged his illustrator, Tony Ross, up onto the stage. The two of them were kind of holding the Nibby's Gong together and getting the photos and all the rest. And that was really nice. And I think it showed a a warmth there between the two of them, but also so much there. And you got it from all sorts. Dr. Ranj Singh was on there presenting one of the awards. And just the sheer importance of children's books getting kids started on that reading process and hopefully taking it through to adulthood so so important
0: and lovely to see louise candlish win the crime novel award for our house i think we've got a little clip from her saying that i mean she's written a lot of books to get to this stage
1: it was a very long journey 12 books all kinds of genres i guess But this was my first pure crime book, and I really felt it was a unique idea and special to me. It was the first time I put the crime at the heart of the story. And I think I just became darker as a person and older, and was really interested in challenging characters a lot more than I had in the past. And, you know, I really challenged them in this book.
4: Well, that's what stands out about these awards. It is is the award that is not just for great writing or great craftsmanship in terms of illustration it is an award for the book that actually breaks through, that readers really kind of take to their hearts mm-hmm. and which sells uh, bucket loads. And I think that's really important because there are other awards for producing the perfect crime thriller book but this is an award where readers have really driven it. I have to say just to reminisce for a second is uh, one of my first jobs uh, the bookseller back in 1996 was reporting on the then, I think it was also called the British Book Awards but the I had no idea what it was but it was the Grosvenor House, as it is today, so this is 22 years ago, it was a wash with very, very drunken publishers, um, <laughs> much more so than today's slightly more sober years, even though we laugh and joke about it. It was a different time with their very very large expense accounts in the booksellers wisdom my job was to produce one paragraph of this that we ran in the nibs column of the magazine as a news story that was the regard that we gave it back then partly i think because we weren't running it it was Mm -hmm. run by publishing news and it was seen as a slightly renegade slightly sort of tawdry affair (laughs) um giving awards to commercial books the trade doesn't always do that Brilliantly, And I think the fact that we have taken it together with the trade bit of the award, the books bit of the award, put it both together and now run it under the banner of the bookseller and run it brilliantly by Nigel's team and our awards team and we give it a proper editorial push in the bookseller. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just elevated the whole thing and makes the whole industry just understand how important it is to award Success, but also just award excellence.
0: And the way that there are all kinds of success and excellence, aren't there?
4: Exactly. It says something very meaningful, I think, about the way we look at the trade. Because the BAFTA's analogy is very interesting because, you know, the films and TV programmes that win the BAFTAs are the films and TV programmes that we actually watch. And the same with these awards. These are awards for the books that we're actually going out there and reading. Speaking about, you know, publishing the big books and how that translates into winning awards on the night. So we have Picador, which won Imprint of the Year. And it published um, really one of the books that didn't win last year that, that maybe should have done which was the Adam Kay book This Is Gonna Hurt. Mm-hmm. That went on to become one of the biggest non-fiction paperbacks ever and that was a Picador book and this year they had The Secret Barrister which is probably following the same trajectory mm-hmm. as uh, uh, This Is Gonna Hurt and um, it's done very well for them. And uh, Nosy Crow run children's book of the year. Nosy quo is interesting because it doesn't really have the big standout book, big bestseller. But what it has done is establish a real kind of engine of growth. Only five years old, its sales are now up to 15 million. I think they grew something like 50% again in 2018. So, you know, just an amazing Engine of growth that Kate Wilson has built without necessarily laying it as yet with the big sort of breakout bestseller.
0: There's great range in Nosy Crow. I'm a big buyer of Nosy Crow books for There's my great nine range year old and I to read together.
4: And magnificent exploitation of all those books in all possible markets. Mm-hmm. I think Kate is a complete marvel in the way that she and her team travel to every fair all around the world selling rights of those books to overseas publishers and co edition deals. And it's just, you know, it's an amazingly strong, healthy way to build a business.
0: Well, thank you ever so much, chaps. Um, Before I let you go, tell us about the Author of the Year Award because we'll be interviewing Lee Child next. He was crowned with that achievement last night. What does it mean to be the Author of the Year?
3: It's a funny thing, especially with Lee, because last year he was the presenter uh, of Author of the Year and he presented uh, that award to Philip Pullman. So it's been great to be able to bring him back and anoint him as Author of the Year. And the thing that is special about Lee is partly just the sheer scale of it. He sold three million books in 2018 of his Jack Reacher series, or I think just one of those books. But he has this extraordinary crossover appeal. More women than men, also, in a sense, the type of authors who love Lee Child books, love Mm. Jack Reacher. So there was a fantastic quote from Margaret Drabble, who's a fan. Philip Pullman is a fan. Kazu Ishiguru is a fan. I mean it's it's just weird. It's not just other crime writers. They are amazing. He I think the ball. I think
0: if you find someone who's not a fan, it's probably just because they haven't read them yet.
3: Yeah, I was new to it. I last year when I met Lee Child for the first time, I'd made sure that I had read his first book and now of course i've got through loads of them because once you start you
4: cannot stop Yeah, i think his books show that there's a real craft to writing what some people call commercial fiction there's a proper craft and understanding of how you push people through a sort of narrative Mm -hmm. multi-layered plot um that he does magnificently
0: Yeah, I read one up on the train yesterday. If you want your train journey to not be aggravating and to go really quickly, then I think read a Lee Child novel. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the best advice I could give.
4: And of course, with Philip Pullman's next book out this year, we can have Lee Child back (laughs) next year, giving the award (laughs) again to Philip Pullman. You heard it here first.
0: Don't you only win it once? (laughs)
4: Yeah. No, come on. (laughs) Oh, but
3: one thing we should also uh, mention, Catherine. We also have an Illustrator of the Year, which was something we started from scratch Mm -hmm. last year. And last year, Axel Scheffler won and gave an absolutely wonderful impassioned speech about Brexit and about the contribution he and others had made to this country. But this year, Illustrator of the Year was Judith Carr, 50 years since the publication of The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Judith is 95. She's still working every day. And it was really lovely to be able to give the Illustrator of the Year award to her. David Walliams presented the award for her. So that was a lovely moment. Um, yeah,
0: and she arrived here as a refugee, I think, didn't
4: she? She did, you're absolutely right, yeah. F- fleeing Nazi Germany in the 30s, yes. It's sort of become the anti-Brexit night, hasn't it, the British Book Awards, Or with Gina Miller last night. And that just sends that it's obviously the British Book Awards, but really it's an award for everybody writing and reading today.
0: Thank you very much, both. Pleasure. There were, of course, lots more winners. We haven't had even a second to discuss them all. So you can find out all about them at thebookseller.com forward slash awards. Or if you're on social media, go to hashtag Nibis and see highlights of the whole evening.
3: And you'll find lots of the videos there as well. So we got most of the videos and most of the winners, David Walliams, June Sarpon presenting, Gina Miller. So, yeah, they're all there.
0: Now it's time to talk to the author of the year, Lee Child. He was born in Coventry, raised in Birmingham and now lives in New York. His most recent novel, Past Tense, was the 23rd to feature Jack Reacher and the biggest selling hardback novel of 2018. It's estimated that one of his novels is sold every nine seconds, which means a couple have changed hands even during my introduction. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. It's
1: a pleasure. I'm happy to be here.
0: Take us right back to the beginning. How did Jack Reacher first walk into your life?
1: I worked in television. I had a great job for Granada Television in Manchester. I was there 18 years and loved every minute of it. Wonderful job. Uh, Until one day my boss said something to me that made it just impossible for me to continue. He said, you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those... This was 1994, I suppose, and it was one of those mid-90s things where industry in general, it wasn't just me, I mean, hundreds of people in television, thousands of people elsewhere, millions of people around the world, they suddenly realized that this 39-year-old expensive veteran, you know, with a decent salary and pension and all that kind of thing, they could be replaced with either computers or graduates working for a tenth of the price. And um, happened to loads and loads of people. So there were three things to sort out immediately. Could I afford to retire at 39? And the answer to that was sadly no. And so, secondly, what was I going to do? Um, I loved entertainment. I just, that's all I've ever done. And I just love the proposition that something I do can make somebody else happy. And so, how could I stay in that world? The answer to that question was not immediately obvious, you know, mm-hmm. because. I was trained and experienced in a job that had just disappeared and I really had no other skills. I was pretty much unemployable and also blacklisted in television because I'd been the union shop steward. Mm -hmm. So I had to get out of television. How could I find something else to do that still gave me that satisfaction? Something I did would make somebody else happy. And so I suddenly realized, well, I've been reading all my life. I'm just a passionate reader, habitual reader. And I thought, well, I've read so many books, maybe I should try writing one. So that's where it all came from. And then, of course, the next step is, okay, what about? So in a way, I wanted a situation that paralleled mine and millions of other people at the time, somebody who had been thrown out of what they were used to all their lives. So I developed the idea of maybe a a soldier of some kind, because, of course, in the 90s, the Soviet Union, having collapsed in 89, 90. There was, in America especially, what they called reduction in force, mm-hmm. where a lot of soldiers were getting laid off, essentially. So I thought, okay, well, maybe that's a way to go. Plus, the idea of a soldier who maybe was previously a military brat. In other words, he's grown up in, inside one universe, and now he's suddenly thrown into another universe that he has never seen before, doesn't understand. I thought that, yeah, that would be an interesting concepts, you know, that would be probably cathartic for me, cathartic for a lot of other people. Uh, It would give me the bones of the story. But then, having worked in entertainment so long, I was thoroughly accustomed to the idea that we know nothing. You cannot plan anything. The more that you try to plan it, if you were to sit down and say, okay, I really need this to work because I've got to pay the rent and I've got to eat, therefore I've got to do this and I've got to do that, and books are bought by lots of women aged you know 44 to 55 so i've got to satisfy them and i've got to satisfy this demographic as soon as you go down that rabbit hole you're lost completely mm. it has got to be done instinctively and organically you've got to recognize that you you cannot predict what the public's going to like You've just got to do something organic and hope for the best. And so that's where Reacher came from. In a way, he came from me with my eyes closed. I deliberately did not want to plan him. I just sat and wrote, and he's what came out. And to be honest, at the beginning, I thought okay, you know, obviously I like this guy, but nobody else will. Because if you look at him objectively, he's a sort of filthy, dirty barbarian, never changes (laughs) his clothes, you know, he cheats and lies and steals and shoots people in the back and all this kind of thing. But I think the organic nature, because I hadn't planned it, because I hadn't overthought it, I think his honesty and organic nature actually saved the day. And people did respond to him in a very passionate way. Mm -hmm. And so... That's how he came about. And, you know, people say to me, how has he changed over the years? And my point is I've tried to stop him changing over the years because being a huge reader myself, I love series. Mm -hmm. I love series fiction. And why do we love series fiction? It's because it's comfortable, it's familiar, it's like an old friend dropping in to visit. So actually all my efforts over the subsequent years have been to stop him changing. Of course, then, you know, the author obviously changes. I've gotten older and so on and... So inevitably, richer has changed a bit, but I try to, to keep him the same. Mm-hmm.
0: It's such a perfect name for him. Did that uh, did that arrive magically? Do you remember the moment?
1: I, d- I totally remember the moment, and it was my wife's inspiration, actually, that um, I was stuck for a name. It's the one thing that I I really struggle with, names. So, you know, my wife, we had a daughter at the time, we had a mortgage, we had all those kind of normal things, and she was... Brave about it, you know. She thought it, She must have thought it was crazy. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a book, uh, but she went along with it. And I, I was struggling for a name, and uh, I was unemployed, obviously. And the problem with being unemployed is that you're at home all the time, and therefore you're deemed available for errands and mm-hmm. help and so on. So she said I had to go to the supermarket to um, help her haul stuff home because she's tiny. So we went to the supermarket and inevitably, every time I'm in a supermarket, a little old lady comes up to me and says, oh, you're a nice tall gentleman. Would you reach me that box? So my wife said, you know what? If the writing gig doesn't work out, you could be a reacher in a supermarket. And I thought, well, that is a pretty good name.
0: That is an excellent name. You said is in some ways not an attractive proposition. Of course, I completely don't agree because like loads of other women on the planet, I find him incredibly <laughs> attractive. I've gone all slightly red just thinking about it. But um, he's, he's not exactly lawless, but he operates to his own moral code, doesn't he, rather than society's. Can you tell us what he believes in?
1: Yeah, and it's quite a complicated feeling. You're absolutely right that that's what people respond to, the the moral compass. Uh, He will do what is right, Mm -hmm. even though it's probably against the law. In fact, I saw an Internet... Uh, capsule description of my series it says this is a detective series where the detective commits more homicides than he solves <laughs> which is kind of true mm. but it, it does it for the exactly the right reasons it's the the heart of gold I suppose but it's it's slightly more complicated for Reacher because there's an exchange in one of the earlier books where It's a flashback to his military days. And one of his colleagues is saying, why did you choose the military police? You could have been anything. You know, you could have been Delta Force. You could have been Armored Division. And Reacher says something vague like, oh, you know, I want to look out for the little guy. Mm -hmm. And his friend says, really? You care about the little guy? And Reacher says, not really. I just hate the big guy. (laughs) And that is, I think, the secret appeal of the series. This is a guy who will fight against those massive, powerful forces mm-hmm. that oppress us all.
0: I've been enjoying these books for years. And I did particularly, when I was reading it yesterday, I did feel of its time in the sense, that don't we all just all long for someone who could come and clean up a bit?
1: Absolutely, we do, especially now, I think. But we always have. You know, mm-hmm. it's an old paradigm, this. And it stretches way back through the Westerns in America, through the uh, medieval sagas of Europe, mm-hmm. the Scandinavian sagas. You could even say, you know, the Greek myths. You could even say religious myths, you know, the arrival of the savior. that Somebody shows up, solves the problem, and then crucially rides off into the sunset because it has to be a transitory thing. If the guy sticks around, that complicates the whole story. And in fact, I think in all of narrative history, there's only one time where this guy has stuck around, and that's the Pied Piper of Hamlin. He sticks around because he wasn't paid, mm-hmm. and then it's mayhem afterwards. So it's a very important part of the myth that the guy is transient. Um, so, again, Reacher fits that bill. He is constitutionally unable to stay in one place. He, he has this compulsion to, to wander, a compulsion to own nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes him even more mythic, in a sense, because it is fundamentally unrealistic. He is, therefore, both on the page a real character in the 21st century, but also very much a mythic survival from the past.
0: And because you know he's ultimately going to save things, it means you can enjoy the peril in the novel.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but and you know
0: it's going to be okay.
1: Yeah, and isn't that absolutely the fundamental uh, promise of most thriller fiction, mm-hmm. really? that, And it's, again, a very human instinct. And I remember this very clearly when my daughter was a baby. There was this thing I used to do with her where she'd be in the bath and i would get pick her up out of the bath and pretend to drop her and then catch her you know a couple of feet down yeah. you know catch her at the last minute and she would just scream with pleasure i do think that is a very basic human thing we love peril mm-hmm. as long as we know it's going to be all right
0: <laughs> In your speech last night, you spoke movingly of your appreciation of your agent, publisher and editor and publicist. And I wonder, do you enjoy the process of publication?
1: I absolutely love it, yeah. I mean, it is hard to to say that writing is uh, entirely collaborative because obviously the meat of it, most of it is done as in a very solitary fashion. You sit there and you write the book, but then it's launched into a mechanism where there are dozens of people passionately supporting the book with great technique and great expertise. And that goes all the way down to booksellers, you know, from the very top of the publishing companies to the humblest bookseller behind the register. Mm. Everybody is committed to the proposition that um, we should give books to the public because they're going to enjoy it. And I I love being part of that. I I love watching something done well. And there are a lot of moving parts in publishing. The cover, the book design, uh, absolutely everything. And and it's done so well. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to watch it being done well. So I really revel in that, actually. that uh, You know, the awards show last night, uh, everybody was there, from the CEOs at the very top to the most junior publicists and designers and copy editors and this and that and they all play a role and I really like being with them you know they're committed professionals sadly one would have to say they're not in it for the money Um, (laughs) and that's a good thing in a way from my point of view because they're just they're there because they love it Mm -hmm. Uh, and hanging around people like that is a pleasure.
0: Your next book is Blue Moon, out this autumn. Can you give us any hints?
1: Yeah, there was a book a while ago called One Shot that I set in a city that was quite well described but never specified, and Blue Moon is the same. I'm imagining it as a medium-sized city of maybe half a million people in the southeastern part of the United States, but I didn't specify which one because I didn't want to cloud the picture with specificity. It's big enough that it has two organized crime gangs. One is Ukrainian, one is Albanian. And alongside them, there's an old couple who have a problem, their daughter gets sick. They find suddenly there's, she doesn't have medical insurance because of a glitch, and so they have to borrow money from a loan shark for her treatment, and then they have to borrow more and more and more, and suddenly they're right up to their eyes with these gangsters. Reacher happens to stumble into that situation and let's just say by the end of the book, they don't have any more money.
0: <laughs> so plenty of peril, but I can read it knowing that hopefully Reacher will save the day again.
1: I think he probably will, yeah. That's, uh...
0: <laughs> and he'll remain transient forever. All these women that throw themselves at him won't manage to keep him staying in the same place.
1: No, I mean, it actually, I sort of explored that at the end of Blue Moon. You know, he's always going to move on. And this time he says to the girl, well, come with me as a ah. sort of challenge, and she says no. And so, once again, poor old is on his own.
0: There you go, but I must say, if he asked me to go with him, then I probably <laughs> would. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in to chat to us.
1: Yeah, real pleasure,
0: thanks. We'll look forward to all the future books. So that's it for our Nibby special. Normal service will resume next month in June... Thank you very much to Nigel Roby, Philip Jones, and to the incomparable Lee Child. And thank you to all the amazing authors for giving us all their books to read and talk about. If you'd like to talk to us about anything, then you can tweet at The Bookseller, or come to our Facebook page, or just email on podcast at bookseller.com. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe. And as you're probably doing right now, you can listen to us at thebookseller.com. And now for our promised audio extract. Becoming by Michelle Obama won last night's Audiobook Award and Nonfiction Narrative Award. Here she is talking about life after the White House. And that will end this special Nibbies edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a Heavy Entertainment Production. I'm Kathy Rensenbrink. Thanks
2: for listening and happy reading. I was at home in the red brick house that my family recently moved into. Our new house sits about two miles from our old house, on a quiet neighborhood street. We're still settling in. In the family room, our furniture is arranged the same way it was in the White House. We've got mementos around the house that remind us it was all real. Photos of our family time at Camp David, handmade pots given to me by Native American students, a book signed by Nelson Mandela. What was strange about this night was that everyone was gone. Barack was traveling. Sasha was out with friends. Malia's been living and working in New York, finishing out her gap year before college. It was just me and our two dogs and a silent, empty house like I haven't known in eight years. And I was hungry. I walked down the stairs from our bedroom with the dogs following on my heels In the kitchen, I opened the fridge. I found a loaf of bread, took out two pieces, and laid them in the toaster oven. I opened a cabinet and got out a plate. I know it's a weird thing to say, but to take a plate from a shelf in the kitchen without anyone first insisting that they get it for me, to stand by myself watching bread turn brown in the toaster feels as close to a return to my old life as I've come. Or maybe it's my new life just beginning to announce itself.